begins, doesn't it, with an outpouring of Paul's situation of suffering. Suffering, hardship, affliction, pain. Uh, These are all the words uh, in these opening paragraphs, the words that dominate uh, chapter 1. And when somebody is deeply uh, afflicted and suffering and opposed in their ministry and feeling isolated, then it does make them doubt whether that ministry uh, is real and genuine and really is being blessed by God. Um, It makes other people doubt that, and it makes you doubt that yourself. And uh, some of you, I'm sure, will uh, will know that. Now, this letter was written about AD uh, 56. Paul had moved from Macedonia, where he'd had a very, very tough time, um, uh, a grueling ministry uh, in Ephesus, He'd faced uh, uproar, riots, all kinds of things there, great threats. You read all about it in uh, Acts chapter 19. Um, And so it's no surprise, really, that the opening paragraphs of this letter are all about struggle. He talks about affliction. He talks about sharing Christ's sufferings. He talks about peril. He talks about the sentence of death. Um, And he wasn't uh, euphemizing there. Um, He has been absolutely battered uh, from without. And... uh, He's deeply burdened also within because uh, chapter 2 speaks all about the burden that he has for, uh, for all the churches that he's uh, dealing with, and especially for the Corinthian church. And he's very pained by the last visit that he had with them. Chapter 2, verse 4, I wrote to you uh, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So he's got great pain uh, for their sin. He's greatly pained by their rejection of the truth and and very particularly by their rejection of him as their apostle. And of course he had the added burden of uh, worrying about colleagues in ministry. Um, We're told in chapter 2 verse 13 he was very troubled when he didn't find Titus in Troas or what had happened to Titus. Um, And of course beyond all of these things he says in chapter 2 verse 11 he knows uh, lies Satan himself. Paul says we're not unaware, not ignorant of his design. So Paul is in a very hard-pressed situation. Uh, There's no pretending in a way. There's no putting on the smiley face. You know the smiley face of ministers' conferences when uh, people say, how are you getting on? You say, oh, great, Uh, we're really blessed. And, uh, you know, the Lord is helping us and really encouraged. And um, everybody says that, don't they? And, well... Is it really true? Paul, Paul isn't like that. Paul tells it as it is here. He doesn't hold back. And yet, in chapter 2, verse 14, he can thank God that all of this means that he is truly following in Christ's train. It means he's identified with Christ. It's not because Christ has deserted him. No, it's quite the reverse. It is Christ's fragrance, says Paul, being spread all around in his own ministry and having a powerful effect among men both as a fragrance of life unto life to those who are being saved and also um, as a fragrance of death unto death for those who are perishing Um, these things show as he says in chapter 5 that they are true uh, ambassadors ambassadors of the uh, triumphant king uh, traveling in his train, uh, they are proclaiming his majesty. They're proclaiming his rule among men. And the reaction is the inevitable reaction when the message of the king uh, is proclaimed. It's not only going to be re- reconciliation, although 
Wonderfully it is, but it will also always mean uh, rejection. And that's a sobering thing. It's no wonder that in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, well, who is sufficient for these things? Because Paul's plain, we're not con men, we're not peddling our own uh, power and strength. He says in verse 17, we're men of sincerity, men of uh, uh, simplicity and godly sincerity is how he puts it in chapter 1, verse 12. Not bolstered by uh, earthly wisdom and knowing, as he says very plainly in chapter 3, verse 5, knowing that uh, in themselves they are insufficient to make any claim to wield, uh, to wield any great power. Paul knows that. But it doesn't take very long in Christian ministry. And this is something that those of you who are still training and preparing for ministry will find out. It doesn't take you very long before you realize the absolute impossibility of you having power to change people's hearts and change people's lives. I think many uh, young men in particular start out with ministry with secret thoughts that they're going to have great and massive uh, influence. And um, very soon you really discover only your great and massive impotence. I think that's really the reality, isn't it? And when we've been humbled like that, and ministry does humble you like that, then we find ourselves saying with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? Because um, when we're forced to be sincere and honest about ourselves, we have to say, well, I'm not. I'm not sufficient. And that's the truth, isn't it? There's no point in us denying that. That is the reality. And yet, Paul can have confidence in his competence. Despite that sober assessment of his own inadequacy, despite knowing that in himself his personal ministry is weak, despite knowing that very often that ministry is met with great hostility and antipathy. But he says in chapter 3, verse 4, that such is the confidence that we have through Christ because, if you look at verse 5, our, suffering, uh, our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent. Competent to be ministers of a new covenant, ministers of the life-giving spirit of God. A ministry more glorious than the ministry of Moses, the man of God. What an extraordinary thing to say. But it's more glorious, Paul says, because it's permanent. And that's a great emphasis, isn't it, in 2 Corinthians uh, 3. How much more will what is permanent have glory than even the glorious ministry uh, of Moses? And that's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Even as we're afflicted, even as we're uh, suffering, even as we're in pain and anguish of heart, even in the middle of the scorns that we will face from the world and the sins that grieve us in the church, we don't lose heart because this is the ministry that we have. We're commissioned by God, he says, as men of sincerity, who speak in the sight of God, who speak in Christ. So Paul will not lose heart because this ministry is his. And I want to ask the question then, what constitutes this ministry that he's speaking of, this ministry he calls speaking in Christ? A ministry that was really able to give Paul such confidence, such courage, such endurance under fire, as is exhibited in this letter. What was Paul's view of his ministry uh, of proclamation, what he was engaged in? 
but enable them to say in the middle of all of these trials, I have confidence. Uh, or chapter 3, verse 12, boldness. Or chapter 5, verse 6, good courage. All these strong, bold, courageous words, these things that made him not lose heart. What was it? What was the character, characteristic of this ministry, as he calls it? I want to highlight just seven things uh, that Paul assumes about his ministry of proclamation that I think help us see why knowing that we have this ministry, like the Apostle Paul, will keep us uh, from losing heart. Despite affliction, despite anguish, uh, despite many tears, which were as real for Paul, more real for Paul probably, and greater than they uh, will be for even any of us. So here are just seven things that have struck me from um, these early chapters of uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul knew, first of all, that the word that he was proclaiming was a heavenly word. Chapter 1, verse 12, they spoke not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Chapter 2, verse 14, uh, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. That's what he means when he says we speak in Christ. We proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord, chapter 4, verse 5. Indeed, we could say that he proclaims not just a heavenly word, but the heavenly word. He proclaims Christ himself, he says repeatedly. He proclaims the living word. Now, that is so characteristic of Paul, isn't it? The personal nature uh, of the one he proclaims. Christ, him we proclaim, Colossians 1.29. Notice how personal that is. It's not just proclamation about God. Paul talks about proclamation of God in Christ. Now that's very clear here in chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. Look at verse 4. In the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which verse 5 says Paul proclaims, is, verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the, it's the proclamation of God's word in open statement of the truth, as he says in verse 2, in the enlightening gospel of Christ, that brings the personal knowledge of God to the hearts and souls of men and women. See, that is no earthly word, no mere earthly word. That is a heavenly word of power and might that he's proclaiming. And so it proclaims not just information about God, but it proclaims and enacts an encounter with God. And that's much, much more, isn't it? Paul is saying that when he speaks his word in this ministry, light shines in the darkness. God's face is revealed to human beings. His smell, his fragrance is overpowering. The fragrance of the knowledge of him is what Paul calls it in chapter 2. A fragrance of overpowering beauty to some and an overpowering stench to others. But it's the presence of God. So Paul was conscious that in his preaching, he was wielding a truly heavenly word, bringing heaven to earth. It brings the fragrance of heaven, the aroma of Christ's personal presence, and brings it uh, to encounter human beings. Now that is Paul's constant way of talking in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 10, 14. Uh, he says, no one can believe unless they have heard Christ's own voice speaking to them. 
How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Not of whom, my Bible anyway footnotes that, it translates it of whom, but it's just a, a, a simple genitive. How are they to believe in, in him whom they have never heard? Because Paul is saying that Christ himself speaks to people and calls them. Paul can't call people into salvation. He says exactly the same thing in Ephesians 2 and 17. Do you remember where Paul says that Christ himself came and preached peace to you Ephesians? Now, of course, what he means is when Paul came and preached to them, Christ himself preached to them and they heard Christ's own voice. So make no mistake, Paul knows that the gospel words that he proclaimed were truly a heavenly word, the means by which Christ himself comes and preaches to people and asserts his lordship over people's lives and draws them to himself, unites them to himself, bathes them in the fragrance of his personal presence, either in blessing unto life or in judgment unto death. It is an encounter with the living Christ that's happening. Now, of course, we are not apostles, and um, when Paul talks in Second uh, Corinthians 5 there about God giving us this message uh, of reconciliation, he's not actually talking about us directly today. He is talking there very clearly about Paul and the apostles. Paul is asserting his apostleship over the other teachers uh, in Corinth. So we mustn't jump too quickly to just apply that us to us, as it were. Um, that's often done, isn't it? Uh, I've been guilty of that in preaching it. But nevertheless, when we come to the later New Testament, there's no doubt, especially in Second Peter and the pastoral epistles and so on, um, and I think the message is very clear there for uh, the whole church. So Second Peter uh, tells us um, that the apostle urges that the church in the future will remember to keep on proclaiming what he calls the word of the prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through your apostles. Uh, in the pastoral epistles, Paul is very explicit in passing on his ministry of proclamation. And in turn, he commands Timothy, doesn't he, to pass it on uh, to others. The glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, says Paul, this same charge I entrust to you, Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 2, of course, he tells Timothy he is to entrust that uh, to faithful, more faithful men who are able to teach others. Now, that is the true apostolic succession of the New Testament, isn't it, as the New Testament knows it. And that means, surely, that every man of God, uh, as he calls Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, every trained and equipped preacher is a man of God. Every man of God is the bearer of this glorious gospel of the blessed God, is the bearer of this same heavenly word that mediates a living encounter with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of the man of God. And that's the ministry that continues all through the ages, according to Paul and to Peter. Now, Moses is the man of God in the Old Testament, isn't he? And so were all the prophets who came after him. It's the Old Testament's name, man of God, for those who brought heaven's word to earth. And in fact, God promised Moses the, that very succession, didn't he, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, with every true prophet, what did, what did God say? I will put my words in his mouth. Words of power and might and majesty to proclaim wonders, to mediate the very presence uh, of God himself. 
And um, if that was true of the man of God, the messenger of God, the covenant messenger uh, of the old covenant, in the glory, as it was glorious, uh, of what was passing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, then how much more glorious is that ministry of the messengers in the new covenant, whose message is permanent? This ministry, that is ours now, says Paul, and by extension, the ministry that is passed on in true apostolic succession through true gospel proclamation to every man of God who proclaims the light of the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> and how much more awesome is that word that we proclaim than that word which shook the earth? That's what Hebrews 12 says, isn't it? How much more the glory of the message that shakes not only the earth but also the heavens. And Paul is saying that it's because we have this ministry mediating the personal presence and fragrance of God in Christ, this truly heavenly word, this earth-shattering word from heaven breaking into earth. It's because we know we have this that we don't lose heart no matter what we see around us, whatever might seem to overwhelm us. Because, <clears throat> as John Calvin put it of the preacher, however flawed the preacher is, the voice itself, which is mortal, is made an instrument, an instrument of eternal life. So that in hearing even the, the most stumbling and haltering faithful preacher of the gospel of Christ, Calvin says, it is as if the congregation hear the very words pronounced by God himself. Is an astonishing thing, isn't it? And that's surely what Peter is speaking about in 1 Peter 1, where he talks about uh, the living and abiding word of God which brought you to new birth. And this word, this word of transforming power is the gospel that was preached to you, he says. Preached by feeble human lips. We don't even know who preached the gospel to the people that Peter is writing. No doubt by men who did feel utterly insufficient for all of these things. But the word that we proclaim, says Paul, is a truly heavenly word. It spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere uh, it's proclaimed. And that's why we don't lose heart. How could you lose heart when that's the charge that you have as a man of God? Now, if that is true... <clears throat> I think it is true. Um, I think at least two implications flow from that. The first is that surely then our preaching must be expectant. Expecting that Christ the mediator himself will come and proclaim himself to people. So that we're not praying that when we preach people will really be educated about Christ. But that people will encounter Christ. That he will be there to impart new birth through his living and abiding word. That he will be there to save those who hear through the apparent folly of this preaching, which seems so weak. That he'll be there to transform people, to deepen the glory, the imprint of himself in the lives of his people. I don't know how it is uh, here, but I certainly think at home that we have lost something of that expectancy in preaching, in our proclamation we don't expect God to be working powerfully there and then in the midst 
I think sometimes now the, uh, the, the best hope that we might have from uh, at the end of a sermon is that somebody might sign up to Christianity Explored or whatever and come and want to hear more. Well, I'm not against that. I mean, I do hope people do that. But are we expecting the heavenly word to break into the darkness of earth in our midst when the word is opened? But I think that must be an expectation. The second implication is surely that <clears throat> our preaching must be expository. What I mean by that is that it really is his words in our mouth, not just our words about him, but his words, his way, as he has given them in scripture. If our sermons are just um, preaching our doctrine, our theological framework, preaching about the Bible, not preaching the Bible, then there's quite a big difference there. Now, don't misunderstand. I do believe there's a, a, a place uh, for preaching uh, doctrine, for preaching framework, for preaching overviews and all that sort of thing. But if God has given us his words to be in our mouths, then surely we must let him speak his way with his emphases, with his richness, with his variety, and so on, in the way that he has given us all of these things in Scripture. Not just to formulate it all into a neat package uh, of our theological system. And um, it seems to me that we'll take that task very seriously if we grasp the, uh, the full significance that we have in bearing this heavenly word. This is the way God has given his heavenly word to earth. This is our responsibility uh, to open it up. So it is a heavenly word, and that is what um, stops Paul uh, losing heart. But I think it's also of great comfort and strength to Paul in preventing him from losing heart to know also that this heavenly word is at the same time a human word. You can guess where we're going with H's here. But chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's rather striking, I think, in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses, the man of God, promises that God's people will always have a prophet raised up from among their brothers, from their own flesh, to mediate God's heavenly word to them. Now, they needed that reassurance. Remember when at Sinai they cried out for a mediator, didn't they? They couldn't stand the, the unmediated presence of God any longer at the mountain. Give us a mediator. And Moses stands in the flesh to mediate the heavenly word of God uh, to the people. And so ultimately, as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God's ultimate revelation came in the human flesh of the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in union with Christ and in the weakness of his earthly humanity that we are enabled to become the vehicle for the revelation of God's glory among men. That's the strange paradox um, of Paul's whole theology of ministry, which is not just here, but it's all through his writings. He rejoices in sufferings, uh, he says to the Colossians, because he's filling up what is lacking uh, in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, for the church, Colossians 1.24. Likewise, in, in 2 Corinthians here in 12 and 13, he boasts about weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me when I'm weak. It's when we are weak in him, he says, that we are powerful among you. Now that seems so strange to us. 
But our God's power is a power that is made perfect in weakness. His glory, the glory of his true nature is manifest above all and supremely where? In the cross. He is a God who is, whose surpassing power is revealed in this world through jars of clay. And that's what men of sincerity who speak in Christ uh, must be, according to Paul. Feels very fragile. But Paul says, well, but that's essential, you see, so that it's seen that it's God's power, not us, not our power. I think it's Matthew Henry who um, calls to mind in the verse here about the jars of clay, Gideon's men. Remember who had their uh, flaming torches inside the jars, and it was only when the jars were broken that the light shone out. And Paul, you see, is saying here, isn't he, that somehow the fragility of our humanity is a necessary part of the heavenly word being manifest here among the people of earth. Verses 10 to 12, I think, are very plain, aren't they? He speaks about death, dying, being at work in us, so that life uh, is at work in others. See, it's our humanity, it's our frailty that is essential for this heavenly revelation of the gospel. And what that means, friends, is that <clears throat> the real struggles of our ministries are not just the cost of gospel work, but they are the conduit of true gospel work. They are the crucible of, of all true gospel blessing. God needs jars of clay in order for his true power to be manifest in this world. And that ought to really, really encourage all of us who are engaged in Christian ministry because what it means is it's not a great star turn. It's not the great exalted guru, uh, guru preacher that your church needs. It's a real person with real human flesh who's frail like you and like everybody else in your church to show that the surpassing power is not from us but from God. Isn't that an encouragement to keep going? It's your humanity that God needs for the task. Along with his heavenly power, your humanity is what he uses. Remember, my father once told a story about a little girl at bedtime who was very scared and lonely, scared of the dark. And her dad was sitting there and, uh, and she said, I want you to stay with me. And he said, no, I, ha I have to go now. But it's all right because God is with you. And she said, I know that, but I want someone with skin on them. And you see, in a sense, that is what our people need, isn't it, in a pastor? Somebody with skin on, someone who's among them like them. Thick skin, I'm afraid you need, um, uh, I do have to say that, <laughs> to survive. But also thin skin, humanity, real humanity, the same flesh and blood uh, as your people. So that your people know that it's the same, that you have the same weaknesses, the same temptations, the same sorrows, the same struggles, all the same things as them. It's a terrible thing when people think that a pastor is somehow on a pedestal in a different spiritual realm from them. In that regard, I wonder if you've heard quoted, we seem to have this quoted a lot in Scotland, uh, the quotation from Robert Murray McChain about what your church's greatest need is. My people's greatest need is my holiness. That, that has always depressed me because if that really is true, then my church is sunk. 
that's not, I think, what Paul is saying here. He's saying that your people's greatest need is your humanity. In all its weakness and frailness, that's what's essential so that it's seen that it's not about you, but it's about his power and his grace. That's not an argument for unholiness, of course, but, but don't be afraid of your humanity in all its weakness because, according to Paul, that is the only true conduit of this heavenly word of power. So we don't need to lose heart when we feel crushed about our own sin and our failures. Paul says he came to Corinth in weakness and tears and trembling. He tells us here he wrote this letter in tears with affliction and with great anguish. And yet God's power was at work and seemed to be at work and seemed to be God's power and not his. So I want to say uh, to those of you who are training, when you're preaching, be human, be yourself. Don't, don't try and follow somebody else's model of holiness. So often that can lead us to false piety. So often that will just remove us from a real connection uh, with our people. And in your care of people, be truly human, be like Jesus. Of course, that is the real holiness, isn't it? True humanity, not, not some kind of sanctimonious piety, but real, fulsome, natural human beings. Unafraid to be natural, unafraid to be unaffected, free of that kind of religiosity that sometimes is, uh, is foisted upon the pastor. Our message is a heavenly word, but it is also and always must be a human word. And therefore, third, it must always be a humble and indeed a humbling word. Verse 5, we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ. Now, I find that both a comfort and a challenge. It's a challenge because um, the spotlight will either be on us or on Christ in our ministry. Our ministry will either be self-exalting or Christ-exalting. It can't be both of those things. And so that's a challenge to us in our ambitions in ministry, to have right ambitions. We need ambition, godly ambition for Christ. We're to have great vision for the gospel in the world. But we need care because it's very easy for us as frail humans to become Corinthian and not Christ-like. The Corinthians were all about puffing up themselves and not building up others. And let me say to you, if you're training for ministry, you can either buff your reputation in ministry or you can bless your church. And that's a choice that you will have to make. It can't be both of those things. Either your stock will be on the up or Christ's sheep will be fully pastored, not both. And so we have to be careful in ministry not to be puffing one another up uh, with a sort of mutual admiration society for people in ministry and uh, guru exalting. Well, it's all around us, isn't it? Our churches are not just platforms for our personal ambitions and for our reputations as pastors. They're not just springboards uh, to greater things, which is really doing the circuit of this or that or the next thing, the more important things in Christian ministry. There are a lot of pastors I know who it looks a lot like that's what it is. But our churches are our ministry. And I always feel it's a terrible thing if somebody's much more interested in going off speaking somewhere else than speaking in their own church. Spurgeon 
He's great for quotes, isn't he? But here we are. Beware of going to this place and that, listening to this person and that, on this platform and that or that, and contributing your part to the general blowing up of windbags. <laughs> well, there's a bit of that in the evangelical world today. But Paul says we preach not ourselves as the saviors of our church, as if we are the answer. Or this latest thing is the answer. Or this latest movement is the answer. No, we preach ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. And the proof of our service, the letters of commendation that he talks about, will be the real truth about the churches that we're building. By their fruit you will know them, says Jesus. And so it's a challenge, that humbling word, to preach not ourselves but Christ. But it is also a comfort, I think, isn't it? Because when we echo Paul saying, who's sufficient for such things? We find ourselves saying, well, not me. What a comfort it is that I don't preach me. What a comfort it is when I feel a fraud. And I think, how can I stand up to preach to these people? If they knew what was in my heart, they'd walk out of the door within five minutes. But what a comfort that it's not myself I'm preaching to them, but Christ. What a comfort. I'm not saying, look at me and come and be like me. But I'm saying, no, don't look at me. Look at him and come with me to follow him. Come with me so that you and I both can take our sins and our shame to his feet, to ask for his mercy and his strength. It's a humble ministry and it's a, a humbling ministry. And verse 2, fourthly, tells us it must also be an honest word. No tampering, an open statement of the truth to every man's conscience. Honest in God's sight, but also honest in man's sight. So he says there's nothing, nothing underhand about the manner, no cunning, no tampering. Well, that's sometimes hard, isn't it? Not to play down the very thing that you know may very well cause a rumpus in your congregation or in the denomination that you belong to or, or whatever it might be or in the world playing down that thing that will cause you great pain and you know it will cause great pain if you let it be spoken. Nothing underhand in the manner, nothing undeclared in the message to spare the conscience. Because Paul knows that that honest proclamation will always, always be met with a mixed response. Not all will see the truth. Paul says plainly in verses 3 and 4, the devil has blinded people from seeing. And so not all will see, not all will respond, not all will do the right. And when that doesn't happen and there's great hostility, it does not mean that you've got the message wrong. It doesn't mean that you're doing it the wrong way or you're faulty. Honest preaching will divide, always. And you need to know that. You really need to know that if you're starting out in Christian ministry. Let me say this. You cannot build a truly gospel church without causing division. If the apostles could not do it, if the Lord Jesus Christ could not do it, let me tell you, you cannot do it. You can't. Nor can you keep a church over the years as a true gospel church without losing some people and offending some people because the natural drift of the human heart is always going to be away from the truth. But we must go on proclaiming an honest word. Nothing undeclared in our message, nothing underhand in our
our manna, to save us from disappointment, to save us from hostility, to save us from pain. And that's why fifth, our real gospel ministry is sometimes a hard word and a hurting word for both the preacher and the hearers. Paul knew he'd hurt his hearers. In 1 Corinthians 4, he talks about uh, coming to them with a rod. And here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, he talks about not sparing them. But it brought Paul great pain to have to do that. Only a true servant can bear the rod uh, in that way. Not somebody who, who likes to do it. Not somebody who loves to beat up. That's the mark of the false workmen, actually, in chapter 11, verse 20. Paul says that they're listening to people who gladly devour them and beat them up gratuitously and enslave them. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that, that, that people should follow a kind of ministry that does that. But that is actually true. Sometimes people love to be in a church where the pastor beats them up and uh, uh, treats them, uh, you know, as a tyrant. They want to follow him. They think this is the real spiritual stuff. Quite extraordinary sometimes how that is the case. And the Corinthians seem to be like that. They seem to want to do that. But what they didn't like was the honest truths that genuine ministry of grace does have to press home out of love and care and concern for Christ. I suppose that's because to be beaten into better performance is actually less challenging for our hearts, isn't it, than a ministry that will bow us in real penitence. And make us confront the reality of, uh, of sin within. Dealing with grace. Grace is a greatly, greatly humbling thing. And we find that very hard. And people resist that often far more than they'll resist the kind of beat you up ministry. But Paul does rebuke. He rebukes in grace. And he does so with great tears. He grieves that they're grieved and hurt. And yet, when you come to chapter 7, as you know, he rejoices greatly in their repentance and he's comforted. But it was a hard word for them, and so it was a hard word for him to give. And friends, the man of God who will speak an honest word will find it's a hard word. You'll find it's hard for people, but you'll find it's hard for you as well. And it'll feel like it's killing you to do it. That's what Paul says in verse 11. We're always carrying around in our bodies the dying, the death of Jesus. It's killing me to, to have this kind of ministry is what he's saying. But that is what works repentance and renewal of life in a church of sinful human beings. And only that will do that. And um, because it is that hard word, that's why in verse 12, um, he tells us that it is a healing word. It works life through the grief of death. In chapter 7, verse 9, he talks about the grief uh, that they had that brought real repentance. And again, in chapter 12, he tells them that all these hard things he wrote to them and spoke to them were for your upbuilding, beloved. Chapter 13, verse 10, he says, it was all, all for your restoration. Everything he did in his ministry was for their building up, not for their tearing down. And when we, when we have to be the bearers of hard words uh, in the church... We mustn't ever forget that hard words are for healing. It's very easy when you're disappointed with people. And this, those of you who are pastors will know this. <clears throat> it's very easy when you're disappointed with individuals or perhaps the whole church. You get very discouraged. Um, 
but it's very easy to become resentful. It's very easy to become angry with people. And it's very easy to want the hard words of the Bible to punish people and to tear them down for our own sake because we're so cross with them, we're so disappointed with them. And we need great care when we feel like that. I wonder if, like me, sometimes in your preaching, you've taken a few well-aimed words uh, for somebody in particular. You think, I'm jolly well going to sock him with this. You know, I've done that at times. And on every single occasion I've done that, the person I was aiming at wasn't there that day. <laughs> Do you know why that was? <laughs> because that wasn't for me to be doing that. And I've learned that um, if it is a hard word that's to be given, it's not to be my hard word, it's to be the Lord's, and it's to hurt me as much as it's to hurt others. Even our hard words are to be healing words, not for tearing down, but for building up the people of God. It's your restoration, says Paul, that we pray for. Don't underestimate how hard that was for him, the way that church had been treating him. And finally, above all, perhaps, our word and our ministry bears a hopeful word. Look at verses 13 to 18, because that's how Paul ends. We go on speaking, he says in verse 13, despite hardship and struggle and persecution and disappointment, we go on because, verse 14, we know a hope that is certain, that he who raised Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. The battle-weary gospel preachers and all the hearers he will bring us with you, he says, into his presence. Verse 15, because it's all for your sake. That is, all his struggles in ministry are for the sake, he says, of a gospel that is growing and extending to more and more people and abounding in thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, Paul's eyes are on the prize. They're on the hope of glory, the great harvest that will one day vindicate all of his earthly labors and show that none of them, none of them were in vain. This ministry is one of certain hope that has been given into your hands and mine. And so we have to have our eyes set where Paul is. Paul's eyes are on that great hope, otherwise we will lose heart. Isn't that why Jesus uh, gives his disciples the parable of the sower to tell us that if all that we saw was what was visible now, of course we'll lose heart. We have to see what's as yet invisible. Because the whole story of the, of the parable of the sower is of disappointment, isn't it? It goes on from what's uh, immediately discouraging, of people who just don't even listen, to people who hear and just disregard it, and people who, who just disappear. But it becomes increasingly devastating as it goes on, isn't it? See, the hardest thing in ministry, the greatest disappointments you will face, are not from those who, who spit in your face and who reject your word just immediately and you never see again. No, that, those... Those are sore, but the greatest pains will come from those who've been with you for a long time and you've loved and you've cherished and you've nurtured, but you've watched painfully as the cares of this world have come up and choked them, the deceitfulness of riches and the love of this present age has gradually choked out their spiritual life and led them away. Those are the really painful ones, aren't they? I'm sure Demas's defection broke Paul's heart far, far more than any of the, the people chasing him out of Damascus and stoning him did. Don't you think? 
course, there are many joys. There are many uh, encouragements in Christian ministry. God is good. God is gracious. And in his mercy, he gives us so many things uh, to lift up our hearts, to keep us to the task. But let me tell you, ministry is sometimes so tough and so discouraging that even the, the visible evidences of fruit that he grants us, even these will not be enough to keep us from losing heart. But ours is a hopeful word. It teaches us to see the invisible as well as the visible, that we have a hope of life in his presence, which is eternal. And because we see the invisible, because we see what God is doing and where it's all going, we know that we have a part in this. This is our ministry by the mercy of God. And so Paul says again in verse 16, so we don't lose heart. Outwardly, it is very tough at times. Our outward nature is wasting away under the strain of it, but our inner man is being renewed day by day by day. We do not lose heart, he says, for verse 17, this slight momentary affliction, which feels anything but slight and momentary, doesn't it, when you're in it? But it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As he says in verse 18, because we look, 18, because we look not to the things that are seen, all the stresses, the strains, the heartaches, the heartbreaks, all the battles, the exhaustion, all of these things are very real in gospel ministry. But we look not to that, he says, but to the things that are unseen. Because we know that the things that are seen are transient. All of those things that we feel in our ministries are not transient, are never ending. Never ending. The things that crush us, Paul says, they are but transient. But the things that are unseen the fruit of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the fruit of that heavenly life that is flooding our world with its fragrance of eternal life that's extending even now in your ministry and mine and all over this world. This ministry, which we share in by the mercy of God and which our frail jars of clay-like humanity God's merciful providence is not hindering, but is helping. This ministry shows us that the things that are unseen now are the eternal things. And so Paul says, therefore, my brethren, having this ministry by the mercy of God and through his apostles who have handed it on to us, we don't lose heart and we can keep going. Well, these things have encouraged me over recent years, and I don't know what your situations are, but I do know that if you're in real Christian ministry, you will face times when you lose heart. And I hope perhaps that uh, some of what Paul has shared of his ministry with us will encourage you also. Let me just pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary nature of this ministry which you gave to your apostles and which you charged them with handing down to faithful men and to continue handing down so that even we who know our frailties, who know our insufficiencies and who are so conscious of our weakness, we can bear this 
title of man of God, knowing that this ministry, which has fruit for eternity, is one that you will keep us in and guard us in so that we will not lose heart and never lose hope. Thank you, Lord, for all your great encouragement. And may you keep our eyes on that which is unseen, and that which is eternal, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ.